You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest uh, on this episode is a familiar voice for for some of our listeners, uh, Ryan Hendrickson. Ryan, thanks for joining us again on The Spear. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So we talked uh, about two years ago. Uh, you were a Special Forces NCO and you shared two stories uh, with listeners uh, on The Spear uh, you have since uh, retired and you wrote a book, uh, which I uh, had the privilege to read uh, and really enjoyed. And I realized, you know, this guy has way more than two stories. We've got to get him back on on the spear. So I reached out. You were kind enough to uh, to say yes and agree uh, to come back on. So thank you very much. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on. I love I love this podcast and it's for all the listeners out there. It's you definitely you get a lot of um experiences that come onto this one. So I mentioned we've had you on the sphere before. Uh, you shared two stories. Uh, the first of those was um, a story from 2010 when you stepped on an IED. Uh, you shared the story of that incident um, and, and you talked about your recovery and, and your fight to really to save your leg, but then also to stay in the army, to stay on active duty and ultimately to get back to a team, uh, which you did. Uh, the second story was from 2016, several years later. Um, but when I was reading the book, uh, there's a 2012 deployment. It was your first deployment back to Afghanistan after kind of going through this long uh, rehab and recovery process. Um, there are kind of three, I think, separate stories that uh, I'd like to talk about uh, in this episode. But first, can you uh, can you describe, I, I believe you stepped on the IED September 12, 2010. About how long was it after that that you got back to Afghanistan? So between uh, September 12, 2010, I... I finally, I was released from the Center for the Intrepid over at uh, Brooks Army Medical Center in San Antonio um, in November of 2011. My company had deployed to Afghanistan in February of 2012, and I really wanted—I really wanted to be on that deployment. And my uh, my sergeant major who at the, when he came and visited me in the hospital, told me that if I could get cleared for deployment, then he would, he would send me back for, you know, back to Afghanistan, which is basically um, what drove me through my rehab process. Like it did. Um, I, I'm pretty sure most people were, you know, they, 
they thought like, yeah, it's, it's great to have hope, but this isn't going to be something that will happen because, you know, I was medically retired and then I got the waiver to come back on active duty. But um, when I came back, I was actually non-deployable. But through all the rehab process that I did back at seventh group through the Thor three program, um, I was able to get a waiver from group that stated, you know, basically, yeah, he can, he can deploy with, with the company. So March, 2012, I, I was back in Afghanistan and, um, I actually found myself in probably the most IED area in the country. And that was Panjway district in Kandahar province of 2012. Yeah, and and for you know, longtime listeners of the Spear, they're going to recognize Panjway District, uh, especially in that time frame, because we've got a lot of stories from there. Because there was a lot of action going on in that area, so that was eighteen months after stepping in the ID. Can you can you give listeners a little bit of a sense of? Um, so you went back, I guess, in in kind of an augmented form. You had a device uh, that you wore, I guess, on on your leg. You had had skin grafts. Can you kind of describe, um, I guess, kind of the state of your leg when you when you showed up in Afghanistan in March? So I I, I look back now and I know that um, I I definitely I rushed it. I outran my headlights on that one because uh, <laughs> I was I was. Um, what, 14 months, um, from having a leg reattached. And so my right leg is, is basically from the knee down, it's pretty much skin graft and the bottom of my foot is skin graft. And so when I showed back up the country, um, obviously I'm telling everybody I'm good. I'm fine. Um, never felt better. And I have my, uh, Adeo brace, which I wear that gives me a calf and a planner and dorsiflexion, basically a foot and a calf. Um, but yeah, any, I mean, the, the skin grafts are still new and, uh, it's easy to rub them raw, a little bit of friction, but I just, I, I had to prove that, you know, uh, Taliban didn't beat me. I had to go back. This ideal race that you, that you described, you know, I'm kind of picturing like a almost like a carbon fiber splint, uh, that attaches to your leg. Is that, is that essentially what it was? Uh, yes. So, so basically I, um, when I first stepped on the IED, um, I was, I was classified as a uh, below the knee amputee. Um, then I went through this new process about it, you know, limb, limb salvage. And, and so before then I, I, I was, I was one of the, um, in the beginning, the, the, the first, I don't want to call them test subjects, but patients for this new limb salvage program. And, uh, before that it was pretty much any, uh, I mean, damages that were a quarter of what I had were automatically below the knee amputees. And so they were, um, really trying to branch out from that because of this new ideal brace and the ideal brace is carbon fiber. Um, and it clamps around right below my knee and it's, and it's basically, it's a, it's a foot. And then there's two carbon fiber rods that give me my calf. If that kind of makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and did you feel, so at this point, um, did you feel like you were, you know, back to a hundred percent in terms of physical capability or, you know, presumably probably not, um, like, you know, where were you on that? You felt like you were, obviously you felt like you were capable of being in Afghanistan and doing the job. 
Um, but how sort of um, degraded did you feel like your performance was? So, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the pain, the, the pain was, was ridiculous. And, and having to put on the show for my team, you know, without limping around or anything like that, um, that, you know, I did, I, I, I think I, um, yeah, the, the pain and, and, and the show that I had to put on is it, you know, that everything was fine and I was back 100%, um, was, it was an every, it, it was an everyday process, but what the, uh, Ideo brace did do for me is the fact that I could, I mean, there was multiple missions where 80, 80 pounds of gear and we're two, three days out. Um, and I'm constantly, I'm, I'm, you know, there's, there's a lot of movement with, you know, um, working the mine detector, bending down, um, probing a site for an IED, whatnot like that. Or the sprints, you know, sprinting when people start shooting at you, you know, stuff like that. And yeah, none of that was an issue at all. Or carrying carrying a wounded comrade or anything like that. None, none of that was an issue. It's just you have to put the pain aside. And that is something that I learned um, very quickly was how, you know, how quick, how much further your body can actually go when it tells you like, hey, this hurts. And you just keep going. Yeah, I I did learn I did learn that your pain receptors will will warn you um, way before your body's going to shut down on you. So, so you were an eighteen Charlie, uh, an engineer, uh, special forces engineer. A big part of your job was um, finding IEDs and helping keep your team safe from IEDs. As you mentioned, Pandra was littered with IEDs at this time. Um, that was going to be a big part of your job on this first deployment back. Can you, you know, I mentioned that there are kind of three uh, separate events that I, that I want to ask you about. But the first one is, can you kind of describe um, the first IED uh, that you found uh, and how that mission went? Yeah. So when I, um, when I got back, um, Actually, um, they sent me out to the they sent me out to Panjway to a team that needed an 18 Charlie because we are we are the guys up front with mine detectors. We're uh, we're you know coordinating our Afghans that are that are also with mine detectors whatnot, and we're just clearing the routes. And um, so we get out there, and I would say it was a couple weeks later. We were out on a mission, and we we had just basically stepped off from our um, from our. Uh, vehicle drop-off point, our VDO. And, um, and so we just stepped off and we moved, I, I moved up to a break in the wall, which everybody knows the Taliban, they, they love the IED, the areas that are the most convenient for you to go through. Um, and so I moved up to a break in the wall and I, I, you know, I swept it with my mind detector and I, I got the positive metal hit. And then I looked around and I had the ground sign for the IED. I was like, Oh crap this is probably an IED. And so, yeah, I went through a range of emotions. I mean, our emotions, I was, you know, I was nervous as, you know, it's kind of like, um, wow, this, I, I just couldn't believe it, I guess is, is kind of what I'm getting at. If, if you get, if you can kind of understand that. And so, um, and so I started, I, I started to negotiate the area with my mind probe and yep, there it was the, uh, the, plastic yellow tape that the uh, they love to wrap up the pressure plates in there's the pressure plate and there's the arming wire and there's the battery pack and i was just like holy cow 
And so, yeah, it, it, it felt, it felt really good to get one under my belt. Um, little did I know that was going to be one of hundreds that trip, but, um, but yeah, that, that first one, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. I was, <laughs> I was scared because <laughs> it brought back a lot of emotion from, uh, 2010. So what do you do when you, uh, when you encounter an IED like that? Do you have, I mean, you have the option between just kind of marking it and staying away or blowing it in place? So, yeah, so we're not, we're not EOD at all. We're 18 Charlie's. So, um, our job isn't to, um, actually negotiate the IED and, and disarm it. Our job is straight up to locate the danger area, mark and bypass or to blow in place. And so on this, on this particular mission, it was, you know, it was daytime there. We weren't, we weren't surprising anybody that wasn't even the job or that wasn't even the intent of the mission at that point in time. So once I had, um, I, I'm not going to lie. I dug a little bit too much because, you know, I just, I was back in it. And so I was able to uncover the pressure plate and the battery pack and whatnot. But in the end, all I did was place, you know, half block of C4 and, um, and, and bipped it right there. And then we moved on. And, were there more IEDs that day as well? Yes. Yeah, we ended up in the Panjaway, um, especially after the incident that happened in uh, March of 2012, which I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody's um, familiar with, with Bales. But um, they the, the Panjaway was absolutely littered with IEDs. It, there was no patrol we went out on where we didn't encounter, you know, five, ten IEDs. Oh, wow. That's actually a really good segue into the second event that I wanted to ask you about. Um, You know, the blue door story, Uh, you you know, as an 18 Charlie, you're obviously dealing with these IEDs as you encounter them on the battlefield, but you're also looking for caches and trying to eliminate suppliers and manufacturers. Um, And and this story, I think, kind of speaks to that a little bit. Can you kind of describe that mission? Yeah, that that was that that was something else. If um, we so we had we went out on this mi- or on this mission basically looking for um this this IED facility or a IED uh, they call it a manufacturing area it's it's a mud hut where they make IEDs at but so we'd pushed out on this mission and you know we infill at night and then um as daylight comes we you know you start your clearance because I mean, you start moving around the area. Everybody knows that Taliban, they'll arm the IEDs at night and disarm them during the day so the villagers can move around, do their thing. Um, Taliban have to play hearts and minds also. They just start killing villagers left and right, which they do. But if they make a habit out of that, they're not going to have any safe haven anywhere. So um, during the day, we you know start moving around, but this village, is it's it's empty. And so you know, anybody who's deployed before knows that that's a bad, that's a bad thing. So we, um, we start moving to the outskirts of, you know, the village that we're going to clear. And I see this one compound and it's, it, it has a bright blue door and I've been all over Afghanistan and I definitely, you know, I've seen my fair share of very nice compounds, but when you're in nowhere, you know, Panjway district and everything is um, just little curtains for doors or sticks that have been tied together for doors. And then you have this nice, 
uh, HGTV <laughs> looking blue door attached to this compound. It's, it, you know, you're going to, you're going to pay attention a little bit. So we, uh, we obviously zeroed in on it. Security is always, you know, primary and whatnot. And, uh, I push out with, uh, with a couple of the Afghans that have mine detectors also. And we start moving towards this compound and then we start getting all the ground sign and the IED litter, like uh, the yellow Pakistani um, deck cord pieces, little tiny pieces, uh, arming wire pieces, just very, uh, very sloppy job at cleaning up around them. It was so sloppy that it made me feel like we're getting sucked into an ambush or or an HBID, houseborn um, IED, you know, something like that. I just, it, it didn't feel right. If, if that kind of makes sense. And, uh, so we start, we start getting closer and I, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out, Hey, how are we going to negotiate this door? Because it could have a trip wire on it or whatnot. And so I'm, I'm through the interpreter. I'm talking to, uh, one of the Afghan special forces guys. I was like, yeah, we need to, we need to get in here, but I'm worried about the house being booby trapped. And, he says something to one of his guys and the guy gets a running start and just Chuck Norris kicks the door down. <laughs> I'm, wow. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Both, both feet flies through the door. Doors wide open. He comes out, big grin on his face, IED material everywhere. Like, holy cow. That inside the compound. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't exactly the way I thought we were going to breach, but okay. And when you say ID material everywhere, what kind of material? So there was, um, there was the yellow palm oil jugs, um, that everybody knows they like to use, uh, pressure plates, uh, battery packs. There was HME, um, already in the jugs and, uh, um, explosives. Yes. Yep. Homemade explosives already in the jugs. And then just the different, um, just the different items that they use to actually dry the um, the homemade explosives and and the fertilizer and stuff like that. So it was all laying on top of this rug, and it wasn't it, it wasn't this find that I thought we were going to get. Like, wow, this is the you know we we just basically crippled the Taliban with this find. It was you know I don't know. Um, 10, 15 pounds of ma- of explosives, probably about 10 pressure plates and batteries and whatnot. Very, very small find. And so we, uh, we, we get security set up, obviously. Um, and we start looking, you know, throughout the area being very, you know, careful because you don't know if you're being sucked into again, a house born. Um, and then, you know, we do our SSE and everything's done. So, hey, let's blow this stuff and we're going to we're going to move on. We're wasting time here. Time to move on. So take all the pictures and I, I start prepping my charges. And I, I remember I used two uh, full blocks of, uh, of M112. So that's um, 1.25 pounds of C4. And so two and a half pounds of C4, not a lot of C4. And um, I, I put it on. You know, we'd position the homemade explosives to where the C4 would det- um, detonate the homemade explosives, which would destroy the pressure plates, batteries, and everything like that. And not a problem. Withdrawal distance, um, nothing nothing too crazy. 
And is that a, the, you know, the amount of C4 that you use, is there a, uh, even a rough, is there a rough calculation? Do you look at about how much material you have and you just have by virtue of your training and experience, you know about how much explosives you need in order to destroy it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it, it's just by doing it a lot. And, um, and the, the, the 18 Charlie course, uh, you, you learn a lot. And so you kind of have a good idea of, you know, we, we always, we always say that, um, um, the calculation for anything in Afghanistan is P equals 20. So, so yeah, it's, I mean, could I have done it with one block? Possibly. Could I have, but will I do it with two blocks? Yep. (laughs) So, so I prep them five minute. Um, whenever you're destroying a cache, I always use a five minute time charge and, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's time fuse, you know, I'm pretty sure people know, but, uh, so get everybody back with draw distance. I got my security element up there. Um, I pull, I pull my initiators, the M 81s and start the time. And we, you know, we move back to the, uh, withdrawal distance and start the countdown. And how far is that? Um, at that point in time, I, I think I had everybody back 300 meters. Okay. So it was, you know, it, it, there just wasn't enough material and it was all inside of a compound. And so the compound walls are going to take the majority of the blast. And it is basically the only real threat that you have is, is, you know, some frag that's blown out of the courtyard or whatnot, but it was actually inside of a room in a compound. So, um, a hundred meters would have been just fine for what we were looking at. But, uh, there was a, there was an area we had already cleared. That was about, about 250, 300 meters away. And so we just moved back to that area and that took about three and a half minutes to walk that, uh, maybe four minutes. And then, you know, we started the countdown seconds, you know, 20 seconds, 10 seconds, and then five, four, three, two, one. And, um, the explosion that happened was not the explosion for what we saw on the carpet. The entire compound disappeared. The, the, I mean, it was raining mud hut walls. I mean, just blocks of, of, of this, of this hundred year old mud hut were just raining down on us. The entire village was covered in, um, in, in debris and dust because we ended up getting the video from the ISR that was overhead watching us. The entire village covered. I'm, I'm talking this blast went, went 500 to a thousand feet in the air. Well, not a thousand, but 500 to 700 feet in the air. The mushroom cloud went, it was, it was absolutely enormous. It, it was like we dipped or blew in place, uh, 500 to a thousand pounds of homemade explosive. And I, I, I could not figure out what just happened. We were getting rained down just just mud hut wall just raining down all over us and people looked at me and was like what in the heck i was like no 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 you all saw what i saw so then was there any part of you that was that was worried and said hey this is my job i'm the one that's supposed to figure this out and this explosion was way bigger than it. did you worry did i make a mistake or were you confident that you i mean you had the muscle memory and the training to to know exactly how much explosives you should have used for how much explosives how much material you saw there 
I mean, I was I was confident because every, everybody even saw everybody saw the cachet, and we were all very disappointed with the size of what was behind the blue door. And so I was confident that you know it was basically like how how are we supposed to know? But then, yeah, um, there's always a part of you that's like, man, this is my job, and we just completely covered this entire village in 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 rock wall. <laughs> Um, you know, with a, with a mushroom cloud that's well over 500 feet in the air. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was definitely wondering if I had missed something, but, um, but no, there was enough of the team that had gone through the compound and saw it. And we had all mentioned the same thing about, wow, this is it. This is, this is garbage for a cache. You know what I'm saying? And so I wasn't, I wasn't completely worried. I was just, I was second guessing myself. Yeah. Did I miss something? Um, well, so we had gone back to, you know, basically do some, uh, uh, battle damage assessment and, uh, BDA. And then we saw pretty much a square outline of a cellar that was below the carpet. The trap door for the cellar was underneath the carpet. Well, Again, in Afghanistan, you try extremely hard, and probably in Iraq also, um, you try extremely hard not to move carpets around because those are the ones that are connected to the pull switches and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, it's very That's very risky when you start messing around with carpets. Usually, when you're going to blow a cache, you minimal movement. Um, you consolidate the stuff the best that you can, get the pictures you need, and then you, know, you blow it because you don't know what's booby-trapped and what's not. And you can do your best, um, but again, it's. Uh, I always, I always tell everybody you can you can get about a seventy five percent solution, twenty five percent of its luck. Um, and so yeah, we went back and ended up underneath that carpet was just, uh, just jugs and jugs and jugs of homemade explosives already to go in the or in the palm oil jugs and ready to go on the ground. And so that's what was behind the blue door. And uh, we, once we figured out nobody was hurt, um, we got a good laugh out of it. But yeah, it was definitely, <laughs> it was not, it it was definitely not what I expected. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, so given given how common IEDs were in this part of Afghanistan at this time, um, given how many casualties they were causing. Did once you realized how much explosives you had just destroyed, did that feel like a win on the same level as taking out, you know, a handful of Taliban guys that that aren't going to be able to 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 fight another day? It did. It it one hundred percent did because we were just recovering from uh, the regular um, our regular army guys that were with us. Not with us, but we were on the same firebase as them. Um, their striker hit a 500-pound IED at the um, at the Argonav River, and and it it killed everybody. And so, yeah, it felt it, it felt like a major victory that we were taking some of this off the battlefield, and um, and 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 it felt good because we were, you know, we were upset. We just we just lost brothers in arms uh, a couple weeks before that, and and so yeah, of course we were pissed. 
So I want to ask you then about the, the, the third event from this deployment, which I guess was just a little bit later in the summer of, of 2012. Um, you're on a mission, you, you take incoming fire, you get into a firefight, and you take cover in a ditch. I think you know what story I'm talking about. Can you kind of describe uh, that mission? Yes. So um, probably the end of July, around in there, we were, um, we, we were again, out on dismounted patrol. Um, and if any, everybody knows Afghanistan in the summer, it's extremely hot. Panjway, um, Kandahar is extremely hot and very humid. So then you add in the grape rows and you're, and, and it's this huge maze, but they can be six, eight, 10, 12 feet high. And when you're in there, it's very humid with all the foliage and from the grapes and whatnot. And you're climbing these walls and you're weighted down 60, 70, 80 pounds a gear. So this mission, we had gone through the grape rows to get to our targeted compound. And we were, we were all smoked. It was, it was way more, <laughs> it was way more than we thought that was going to happen. Um, the wall, the, the grape rows were just, they, they just beat us up really bad. And I, I'm pretty sure listeners who have encountered that they'll, they'll be shaking their head. Yep. 100%. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm drenched in sweat, completely covered in sweat. And, um, and so what I didn't realize was my skin grafts with all the sweat and, um, and friction from climbing over grape rows and moving around and whatnot like that. Uh, my skin grafts had rubbed raw and I had, I had wide open sores where, and the skin graft on the bottom of my foot had actually begun to peel off. Well, I didn't, I didn't know this. So we're moving towards our targeted compound. And, um, and of course the enemy, they're, they're, they're watching us go through the grape rows, probably laughing about it. And, um, you know, right off the bat, right when we get into the open, we, we, we take contact. And so, you know, as every soldier knows, um, you know, you find cover and you return, you return fire, you know, um, fire superiority, violence of action, everything like that. So my soldier instincts kick in and I find cover quickly. There's a ditch right along the road, right along a compound, not a problem. So I find cover and I start returning fire. This is great. This is what we're trained to do. And, um, sounds good. Well, a couple minutes, maybe five minutes or whatever into the, uh, the troops in contact, I, I start to smell this, this odor. I'm like, what is going on? This just foul, foul odor, but the adrenaline's high and whatnot like that. And I haven't really assessed <laughs> my surroundings quite yet. Um, cause I'm focused on the compound that we're taking contact from. Well, you know, like, like everything else, you get air overhead and the, um, and, uh, they, you know, they, they, the enemy gets their head down cause they're, they're not trying to have a bomb dropped on them or take some 2.75 rockets. So then I start looking around, we have a low on fire and I'm like, what stinks so bad. And I'm looking and I had jumped, uh, basically almost waist deep into a sewage trench. I was going to say, listeners who have been to Afghanistan know as soon as you said you smelled something, they, I think they had an idea of what was going on. Yeah. So um, I had jumped basically waist deep into this sewage trench. And yeah. And so I, I, I'm sitting here 
and I'm covered in human feces, I'm now I'm mad because number one, we're getting shot at. Number two, I'm covered in human feces. I had I had no idea that my skin grafts were open at this point. So we still had a couple days and I stunk, obviously, team, you know, they let me know it very well. But we get back to our fire base and um and I, you know, start to go through my my checks on my leg and everything. And all I see is just number one, the skin graft on the on the bottom of my foot is is half half gone. And the skin grafts on my legs, they're all peeled up and open sores everywhere. And I had just, you know, I had been in a sewage trench basically up to my waist. So that brought up that brought up a lot of concerns right there, yeah. About infection, presumably, is that something that you had been told ahead of? To the, I mean, did, did doctors tell you, "Hey, we know you're going back to Afghanistan. This is what you really need to be looking out for." Is are the grafts holding, and if not, are they at risk of infection? Yes, yeah, the grafts were the grafts were a big big deal um, to them when I was going back. Um, they were just saying, "Hey, look." Uh, it, you know, basically, the, my doctors in San Antonio didn't advise me going back because I wouldn't be able to keep, um, I wouldn't be able to keep track of. Well, no, I could keep track. I just the 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 environment isn't as clean as it is in the states, and so for me to be back there in that environment, I had basically taken the infection risk through the roof. Um, just being in the environment, I'm not even talking about jumping in a sewage trench. <laughs> Was being in Afghanistan alone. So what did you do? So basically, after that had happened, you know, I I, I had to tell somebody. Um, so I told our medic and our eighteen Delta, and he uh, he automatically, said, hey, we need to get you to CAF. And um, yeah, we basically loaded up, went to CAF, and our our group surgeon said, hey, I'm I'm pull- I, I got to pull you off the team, dude. Like, I have no idea what's in your body. I don't know what's going on. You, you know, this, yeah, you need to be monitored. You, you're leaving Panjoy. And so, yeah, they, um, they basically sent my stuff um, behind me uh, a couple days later. And, uh, and I found myself being monitored at CAF making, you know, um, for infections and diseases and everything else. And did, did it end up getting infected? No. So that's, uh, that, that's, what's kind of crazy. Kind of, I don't know, makes me wonder if I'm kind of Wolverine or whatnot, but, um, but yeah, I know I, there was no, I didn't get any infection at all. And, um, and so they, so basically, um, the, the decision got made or the decision was put out there. Hey, uh, we're not sure if we, if you need to deploy back to the States because of, because of your leg, I knew, that if I was sent back to the States, I was probably never going to deploy again as a Green Beret ever again. Um, because um, basically all everybody who was saying it was really dumb idea for me to go back to Afghanistan would have been proven right. And I would have got stuck at a desk job until I was able to retire or, or, or they would have uh, been able to uh, revoke my waiver to continue on active duty and medically retired me at that point. So I fought 
very hard to stay in Afghanistan, anything I could do. And what I ended up being was I, I ended up working, um, resupplying all the teams that were out in the field. And so, yeah, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And it was a huge, it was a huge knock to my ego. But at that point in time, my survivability as a green beret, um, was in jeopardy. And so I had to be, you, you know, the old saying, like, if you're, you always got to be busy, always find work. Um, and so I found that work, um, loading aircraft that were, that were sending supplies out to the teams and I would make sure that they were getting all the good stuff. So people like, yeah, this, this Ryan Hendrickson's really hooking us up. You know what I'm saying? Just trying to, trying to make myself useful. So I didn't find myself on a C-17 back home and then quickly, um, show. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I wanted to ask you about these three events from this particular deployment because I think they lend themselves to some pretty interesting discussions. Um, you know, first, when when you were laid up in the hospital, you were going through the rehab and the recovery. Um, you wanted to get back into the fight, but you had a very specific uh, sort of target on the wall, which was getting back to your unit that was deploying to Afghanistan again. Um, when you finally did that, did you run into any opposition or, or any skepticism? So actually, um, when I first got back to Afghanistan, my biggest issue that I ran into was they reassigned me back to the team that I had been blown up on. And so the problem with that is everybody saw my leg and everybody knew that I was done. My, my time on active duty was over. I will never deploy again. It just wasn't going to happen because of the, the the trauma and when i showed back up out there yeah you could you could definitely say i mean there was there were some guys that had made their made their very just and i don't blame them at all made their opinions known like hey look we're not we're not your uso trip or this isn't an area where you can come out and 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 try and feel good about yourself this you, People will die if you don't hold up your side of the, you're into the bargain out here. And, um, because this is the most IED area in Afghanistan. And they're like, I don't, I don't know what you think you're trying to prove. Or I don't know if this is, if you think this is something that you need to do for yourself, but Android is not where you do that. And, and so the minute I stepped off the bird, yeah, I was already looked at as a, as a, as a crutch for the team. And that's, that's a very, very hard thing to overcome. Um, but I did, <laughs> I did. So the grape rows, finding IEDs, firefights, everything else. It just, you know, I, I, I was able to, but, uh, unfortunately that, well, fortunately and unfortunately, you got to have extremely thick skin. And you got to keep, you got to keep in mind uh, if I knew for, for a second that I was going to be putting lives at risk, I, I would, I would ask to, to not go, or I would have, I would have tried to find, you know, a more relaxed area, maybe stayed at CAF and, and did AST or something like that. I don't know, but I knew, I knew I could benefit the team. I knew that I'd be saving lives by going out there again because you needed it, Charlie. You needed somebody up there who was, who was working, 
working the Afghan uh, counter IED guys who was clearing IEDs himself. And so um, I knew, but proving yourself, that's, uh, that's, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> and, you know, as, as listeners know, and, 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 and I'm sure you know, Ryan, that, that, you know, the U S military has this huge sort of support tail um, that, that, you know, logistics and intelligence and, and all sorts of things that, uh, that sort of feed into making the tip of the spear as sharp and effective as possible. And I think, you know, you, anybody that, that has spent, you know, a big chunk of their career at that, that, that tip of the spear will acknowledge that those other elements are, are important and they play a vital role. They make a, a vital contribution to the effectiveness of the U S military as a fighting force. Um, so, you know, conceivably you could have said, Hey, I want to stay in the army, but I don't have to go back and, and do this stuff. Um, I can still make a contribution elsewhere, given what you talked about, given the pain, uh, that you were enduring on, on missions, uh, given the risk, you know, when you jumped into that trench and, and had this realization. And then when you saw the sores and realized, wow, I'm, I'm at risk in a way that, that other people here aren't, why was it important to you to get back into the fight specifically, uh, in that role? So I, I, I think the, the most important for the most important thing for me was this. Um, and so at, right after I stepped on the IED, we could hear the Taliban celebrating over ICOM chatter. Um, you know, their, their huge victory over, over us and whatnot like that. And, and that had stuck with me <clears throat> for a very long time. Number one, but number two, um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to let, I, w- I wasn't going to let the Taliban beat me. I wasn't going to let this injury define who I was. I'd gone from the Navy to the Air Force and, and everything that I've been through in life and whatnot like that. I was, I, I'm a Green Beret and I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let one wrong step. There's anything that I can do in my power. I'm going to, I'm going to try and take control of my life again. And part of me taking back my life was proven that I, that, regardless of what everybody said, Hey, you, you did your part. You barely survived. This is stupid. Why are you going to do this? You know, let this is a young man's game, blah, 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 everything like that. I wasn't, I wasn't going to let this incident define who I was. I am still, you know, I still have a life. I still can, con- or I can still, um, contribute. Um, and, and I'm a green beret and not only can I contribute, I can save lives. I can save limbs. And so my, the biggest driving, I I guess the biggest driving force behind me, behind my decision to try and go back was because that was my way of not becoming a victim of, of, of really a pretty crappy circumstance that life had, life had thrown at me. Um, and that, that was my way of, of kind of owning that situation and making the IED that I stepped on, making that. Yeah, it, it happened. Um, it, it was bad, but I am bigger or I'm, I'm stronger and I'm a better man for that happening. And, and I did that through, you know, obviously sound advice from my dad and, um, and backing of some, of some amazing people. But, you know, I made that IED make me a better man, make me a stronger man. And I think my team, they, they came home with all their limbs that trip. So, 
So, uh, you know, for kind of a last question, I want to shift gears a little bit and 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 talk about leadership. Um, there were two individuals uh, who uh, kind of made an appearance in your book that I want to ask you about. The first is Admiral Mullen, who showed up uh, while you were training at Fort Bragg, I believe, um, and 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 said to you all, you know, before deployment, you're doing great things for the army. You're doing important things for your nation. If any of you are hurt, I'm going to personally follow up uh, and check in on you. And he did. He visited you in the hospital and you described that. Um, the second person is, I believe, your battalion sergeant major um, who also visited you in the hospital and and knew how much you wanted to get back to a team. And he said, if the Army says it's okay uh, and, and you rehab sufficiently, I will uh, personally make sure that you get back to a team. Uh, and he did that. Uh, so both of those incidents seem to mean a lot to you. I wonder if you can kind of describe a little bit why that was the case. So yeah, I, I, I definitely, I definitely want to want to talk about Admiral Mullen a little bit because it did it surprised it it very it, it was a huge surprise to me because when he did step off the bird and he was coming out, uh, we were we were getting ready for the surge and he came out and 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 he he said what he said most people thought is well yeah sure you will or whatnot but the 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 thing that impressed me the most when he came into my hospital room was the most senior leader um as the chairman joint chief of staff uh he he did what he said he was going to do and i i i honestly i couldn't believe it because we had the surge going on at the time um I mean, we were at a stalemate with the Taliban. He's got a million other things, or excuse me, he has a million other things going on. And he took the time to come and see, you know, Staff Sergeant Ryan Hendrickson and everybody else. And there was a lot of guys that got hit. Um, I, I'm pretty sure everyone's tracking, but he took the time and, to come and see us. You know, 2010, there was a lot, a lot of soldiers got wounded. And uh, he he did what he said he was going to do. Well, then fast forward to, um, you know, retired Command Sergeant Major Rury. Uh, Rury, he told me. And it could have been feel good words. It could have been something that you're saying to a guy who's who's uh, doped up on methadone and, and, and everything else you can imagine. Right after he got hit, of course, you're going to say that. Like, yeah. You you got it, man. If you if you find yourself, yeah, you'll I'll, I'll send you back to Afghanistan. Those are all those are all feel good words, and but the fact of the matter is is against you know I mean people were saying like hey is 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 Hendrickson ready to go? And Sergeant Major Reary said hey I was told by the Thor three staff about the people who actually put people in the return to or return to the return to flight program and whatnot like that, that he's good to go. I told him he would redeploy. I need an 18 Charlie in the Panjaway. He's redeploying. And until he can't hold up his side of the bargain, he's going to be on your team. Let me know how he does, because I think he's going to be just fine. And again, he had, he wouldn't have sent me out there if he thought I was going to put a team at risk, but he, but he he did what he said he was going to do, and that's uh, to me, you know, those two incident well not incidents those two situations right there with uh, Admiral Mullen and Command Sergeant Major Reary, 
it really made it, it, it kind of set the remainder of my military path with knowing that, that a man's word or a person's word, when they say they're going to do it, they do it because that's, because it changed my entire life. All the, by them just following through with what they said they were going to do because no one expected them to. I didn't. Yeah. You know, like I said, it's in reading the book, it was clear how much uh, those two, um, you know, events meant to you where, where two individuals in positions of leadership uh, followed through on what they said they were going to do, like you said. And, uh, you know, it's such a fundamental element of, of, of military leadership. Um, but maybe something that because it seems so simple that we don't talk about as much as we should. So I'm glad we could highlight that. I think it's a great place to end on. So Ryan, I just want to thank you again for, uh, for joining us on the spear. Yeah, I, I love the show and I, I, I definitely appreciate you guys having me on here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the spear. The spear is produced by the modern war Institute at West point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.